You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Tony Williams left home at the age of 16 to work on Nilpana Station for his childhood idol, Jimmy Nunn. That was almost 50 years ago. Today, Tony is in his 40th year as the manager of Mount Barry Station, near the town of Coobabidi in South Australia. In this episode, he shares yarns from the past five decades and what he has learnt along the way about life, love and loss. Before we started officially recording, Tony was sharing one of his favourite sayings with me and I thought I should include it in this episode. And you'll see why in just a moment. Leave the checkbook at home and the brain and iron's hot. And I think it's very good advice. What does that mean? I don't know what that well, means. <laughs> it means get out and work, but be careful with the checkbook. Like don't spend all your money when you make it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I love I feel like that is profound, but also it just shows <laughs> that I don't know if I haven't had enough sleep. I was like, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. No, leave the checkbook at home and the brand and iron's hot. Yeah, okay. I'm going to have to write that one down. <laughs> then yeah. I'm going to start asking other people now and be like, do you know what this means if I tell you? Now, to officially start our chat, I asked Tony to tell me about when he first left home. I come up into uh, this country in 1973 from the Flinders Ranges. I grew up down there on a, on a farming and grazing property. It was sheep and cattle there. I could ride a horse, but I wasn't a confident rider. I guess you'd say I was pretty green. And it was a big shock to go out in the stock camp and to be amongst all these hard, hardened ringers that could live in the tough life. And it seemed extremely hard for the first probably three months, but you soon fit in and life wasn't that easy. It was, you know, you're out with a plant of horses, you had limited communication and the food was very basic. There was no refrigeration. And the days were long and hard and hot. Bronco brand in camp draft and mustering 14 hours a day, seven days a week. How old would you have been when you first came up to Nilpana Station? I was 16 years of age. And I always wanted to come up a year because... In 1967, when Dad and his two brothers bought Nilpana, the manager of Jimmy, manager of Nilpana back then was Jimmy Nunn, and he used to come down to Carrot and and I remember sitting at the table listening to Dad and Jimmy talk for hours about mustering cattle, chasing brumbies, donkeys, camels, and I thought, I want to work for that fella later on, and I was only 11 years of age then, and. I had in my back of my mind that's what I was going to do and I did eventually and I don't regret it. Jimmy Nunn was one of the best guys, an amazing man to work for and a great stockman and a smart mechanic, an all-rounder. 
Was there ever any questions that you were going to come up and work on stations or was there any pressure from your family to finish school? Because if you were 16 at the time, you would have still been of school age. I didn't really enjoy school and I, was, uh, I wasn't pressured to do either. I really, Dad and Mum were very good that way. They, um, they said maybe you should go to school a bit longer and then we talked about it and... I decided to go and bush. And it was very hard, but no way was I going to back down and end up back at school. No way it was going to happen. And this was the early 70s. Was there any stigma attached with leaving school early back in those days as there is today? I think, you know, if somebody drops out of school you know, year 10 or 11 these days and goes and gets a trade or just goes and does a, a labour job, there can be a bit of a stigma attached to it. What was it like back then? No, there wasn't. Back in them days, a lot of guys and girls left school quite early and were out in the workforce. Like, my dad, as soon as he's seen a guy with a whiskers, if he's old enough to grow whiskers, he said he should be out working. And he's seen that is valuable resources, you know, human resources. The land, the pastoral industry needs people, young people, vibrant, energetic. And, yeah, no, it wasn't, it was, it was was a good, great way to be growing up. When you came up to Nilpana, your family had purchased it some years before and Jimmy Nunn was managing it. Did your parents drive you up there or did you just kind of get put on a train to go there? How did you make your way up there? I come up on the GAN, on the GAN train, and Jimmy Nunn met me up at Duff Creek Siding and we drove back to the station and then it wasn't too long, a day or two, we mustered up a plant of horses and I was taught to shoe a horse. There was a couple of old pensioners there that I had. And um, a couple of days' time away we went. We were out mustering out in the stock camp. Did you ever feel on that ride, on that train ride up there, or in those first couple of days, were you nervous? Or were you, did you feel homesick once you got there? I mean, you're an awful long way from home. No, I was excited. I had so much adrenaline running through my body. I was excited about the new adventure. And I wasn't homesick. There was times I thought about, oh, how's the footy club down, the local footy club going, or how they going with the cricket down there. But you soon get over that and move on with your new life. And I had a an Aboriginal fella that was about my age, and his name's Norman Rosella, he's still alive, and him and I were great mates. He taught me to track. He taught me a lot of things about bush survival, killing lizards, rabbits, cooking them out in the bush, digging up frogs on the sand hills, all those sort of things that people probably don't sort of do these days, and I was lucky to be amongst all that. Aboriginal fellas were a big part of the stock camps back in them days. They were very smart, you know. They could track better than most white fellas. And when you're mustering on horses, you can't rely just on covering the area. You've got to be looking at the ground most of the time, looking for tracks. And then once you get onto a mob of cattle, you might ride over a sand hill and there's a swamp there, and there's two or three cattle grazing on this swamp. 
And when you first ride around them and bend them, they'll be lively. They haven't seen a man or anyone for at least six months, sometimes nine months, and they're going to be fresh. So you block them up and then just walk them. Always never let the cattle trot. We were taught. Just let them walk along. Even if it takes you half the night, just walk them along. But we'd get back late in the afternoon from mustering and then you'd have a feed, change your horse, and then we'd draft the sale cattle out the fats, as we called them, into the tailor mob, and then yard up and then bronco brand and usually have two guys. Jimmy Nunn was the main catcher. When I first went there, he was it. He could catch anything. He was an amazing catcher. He's won that many Australian titles from Bronco Brandon. But anyway, he would always let a younger fella have a go as well. So there would be himself on one horse and then learn a fella's jackaroos or whatever on the second horse. And he taught us to Bronco Brandon. He taught us all the skills associated with running a station. And then... Mustering would take about six or seven weeks on Nilpana and you'd be out, you might see the homestead three nights in six weeks, go home, change some clothes and back away you go again. And generally after the cattle work was finished up, we used to go donkey running, brumby running, camel running and walk plants of horses two, three hundred k's and then muster back, like up to Todd Morden, uh, Macumba, Granite Downs, all up through there. Spent a lot of time chasing Brumbies, and then after quite a while, I suppose, when I was up four or five years up there, I actually was on a bike running with Jimmy Nunn and Stewie Nunn, them blokes are legends, unbelievable. What they could do on a bike was just unbelievable. And... Their knowledge and their the way they sort of handled stock and people, incredible people. What do you think was the biggest learning curve for you when you got to Nilpana as your first job on a station? Oh, there was a lot. There was, you know, working as a team was probably one of the main things. You had to look out for each other. It's a land of no second chance out in the outback. If you... If you stuff up in the summertime or you're thrown from a horse way out with a broken leg, you're a goner. And um, one particular time we were out mustering and the main horse tailor we'd had, the horse tailor is the guy that looks after the horses, the planter horses. And generally you'd have 30 to 40 horses in the plant. Anyway, the main horse tailor we'd had, he'd... He'd pulled out and we had a couple of green fellas tailing the horses and they couldn't track that well. First night out, when you took the plant out the first night, was a troublesome night. The horses are clear out, they're fresh and you always get two or three go. Anyway, one particular night we went out, we camped out, we're about 40k from the homestead and... One bronco horse and my camp horse and another riding horse cleared out. Anyway, sent the two fellas out 
onto their tracks if they could find them. And no luck. We'd cut out, we'd branded at this particular spot the first day out and finished up about four o'clock. And I said, oh, I'll catch a fresh, fresh horse and go out and see if I can get these horses before dark. Anyway, I got onto their tracks, they were heading west and it was getting late. I'd followed them probably 13 or 14 kilometres, I reckon. It was winter time. Days were pretty short. Anyway, I'm on their tracks and it's getting dark and I thought, bugger them, I've got to have a Bronco horse and a camp horse. I've got to keep going. So I dug a hole in the sandals between two cane grass bushes and tied my horse up, took the saddle off and hobbled him short and... I camped down into between the cane grass bushes into the sand and put the saddle blanket over me. I didn't have much sleep. I was restless all night, you know. It was really cold. I hadn't eaten. And I hadn't had a drink probably for eight hours. Anyway, as soon as I could see, I got back onto their tracks and away I went and I caught them up probably about 11 o'clock. They'd gone about... 20-odd k's from the camp, the main camp. And I caught them up and I changed horses, caught a fresh horse. The main riding horse that was was with those three horses was the leader and I rode him back and caught the guys up at 3 o'clock the next day. But see, that was just considered a day's work. No one flinched, no one worried about you. They just, you'll be okay. You know, you were expected to do that. And there was plenty of times at night when cattle rushed and there's no way you're going to lose a mob of fats after you've been mustering for 10 days. We used to have competitions, tie-up night horses every night, especially once you'd had a good mob of fats in hand for three or four or five nights. Sometimes they'll become a bit restless, you know, especially if they're not getting enough feed. If the country's a bit dry and and you've come off bores where there's a lot of the springs, you know, the cattle don't drink properly. And if cattle, cattle haven't had a good drink and a feed, they'll be restless. They're like people. Cattle are very much like people. Anyway, there were several nights that the cattle rushed and we would have competitions to see who could bend the lead. And anyone who's heard cattle rush laying on the ground, you'll never forget the sound. The thundering noise of the hooves on the ground and the echoing of the ground, it'll frighten you out of your swag, I'll tell you. And I remember one night we were at Edwards Creek on the old Gann line and a bloke called Rodney Fullerton, he grew up as a kid on Anna Creek. He was a good ringer, he's still a good ringer, a good man. And he wanted to be the first out. There was a nighter was called Sturt. And I seen him fly out of his swag in his jocks, bareback, and I was on a saddle horse, and he bent him in his jocks on a night horse, riding <laughs> bareback, up across. Probably the lead went about a kilometre before we bent him. And then, of course, once we settled him, 
then we'd have to take them back to the camp and night watch them because the yard's all finished. And then they, they would be restless and you had to watch out. Once they'd rushed one given night watch out the next two or three nights, they're going to be jumpy. So you're always on tender hooks. You never slept properly. Always had one ear out. Like, never put the camp sheet over your head. Always be exposed so that you'd be ready. You'd think you'd go to sleep with some pants on then, not just in your jogs. <laughs> well, I don't know. I always slept with my clothes on because I was ready to go. But this particular night, I don't know, Rodney was in his jocks and it was like a white lightning <laughs> galloping across the gibber tableland. And I can still see the, the flint and the sparks coming off the horse's shoes going galloping across the rocks. Wow, really? True. That is just wild. I just love. I just. I did not think that in this podcast interview, I was going to get a vision of a young ringer in his jocks, <laughs> flat strap on a horse, bareback in the middle of the night. But there you go. You never know what's coming around the corner. But see, them days, blokes could ride anything. They, you never worried about a ringers. Hardly ever got hurt in the stock camp because if you were head stockman, you'd place horses to suit different ringers. And the experienced blokes could ride anything. And if they did buck off, they knew how to fall. Probably one of the worst things to watch out for was if a horse fell on you drafting. And that happened a couple of times where guys got bunged up pretty bad, you know, with a horse rolling on them, falling on them, bunged up lips and, you know, abrasions and... But you know what? They always line up for work next day. They might be sore... And then there was other times when you're out in the stock camp and there's health issues. We had boils go through the camp, mainly due to poor nutrition, you know, like because you weren't getting greens and that sort of thing. And blokes riding horses with um, boils on their legs and backsides and back, and and it was tough, you know, but... You would, you soon learn never to grizzle, never say it was hot, never say the conditions were tough. Because remember, I was a green boy from down south. I soon learnt it was either step up or get out, and you're never going to whinge. It sounds like you're describing something, though, from the Wild West, you know, when America was being settled out in the 1800s or the 1700s, not the 1970s Australia. That's how it was, and, you know, our camp was probably one of the bit better camps, actually, you know, food-wise. Some of the big stations, it was mainly damper, sugar, tea. That was it, salt meat, hardly any fresh meat. And it was tough, and, you know, like back at Anna Creek in the day, they only had bun carts. At least, you know, most of the time we had a four-wheel drive, but... There would be times on occasions if we were just walking cattle, shifting a few cattle around from water to water, we would use packs. Might three men go out with with three pack horses and a few, and a planter horses and just shift a few cattle around. Um, but most of the time we had a, a Toyota with a trailer and a cookie wagon, as we called it. 
So tell me more about this Jimmy Nunn, who is the manager. It sounds, you know, from we spoke a little bit before we started recording this podcast, and it sounds like this man had a great impact on your life and was very influential. And you mentioned there was a nickname that some of the other young fellas used to call him. The young fellas used to call him God. They thought he was heaven on a stick. He could do anything. He could ride a buck jumper, he could ride a motorbike, run brumbies, run donkeys, camels, fix a motorbike, pull the gearbox out of a car. He could do anything. How old was Jimmy? Because he sounds like a pretty, not going to lie, you said he was heaven on a stick in my eyes. My well, ears opened up. I was like, oh, hello. When I went up to Newport in 1973, he was around 40 or close to 40 years of age. And he was at his prime, like, his, the way he worked men was just amazing, you know. He'd never, ever, I worked for him for eight years. He never roused at me once. And there was plenty of times I did things wrong, still learning. But he soon let you know in a roundabout way, don't do it again. Like, if you were working cattle or horses and they beat you'd say, that horse was a winner, boy. Don't let it happen again. So you soon learn to step up to his standard. What do you think it was about him that made you want to be, it, sound, it sounds like you wanted to be the best you could be for him and make him proud. What do you, Not everyone can get that response out of their stuff, though. What do you think it was about him? I just like his style of management. He was just exceptional. And then... After four years being at Nilpana, he let me run the camp and same again, I was never going to let him down. And that's why we would sort of, you know, camp with one year open ready for those cattle to rush. There's no way we were going to lose a mob of fats. And that's the type of thing you do for a good boss, you know. You just work your butt off for him. He would never ask you to do anything he couldn't do. If you thought you couldn't do it, he would get on the horse or do whatever. He would do it and show you up. And that's what I liked about his leadership. He wouldn't ask you to do things he wouldn't expect. You know, he just, he he was just a really great friend. And we're still friends today. He's 86 years, still mustering cattle now. And I talk to him quite regularly. Um... My first wife, Patsy, was his daughter and unfortunately in 2003 she passed away with cancer so we've been great mates and still are. It's, um, I'm just wondering, when you stepped off that train all those years ago in 72 when you came up here and he picked you up from the train station, probably didn't think that, you know, 50-something years later you'd be... It's still in each other's lives and as close as you are today. Yeah, you just don't know, do you? But, you know, that's the adventure of going and starting a new life, isn't it? You know, you don't know what you're in for. Just enjoy the ride. You know, life's a roller coaster. Enjoy the highs because there'll be lows. And you reflect on your life. And I'd say I wouldn't do, I wouldn't change anything for the world. I've just loved being out in the outback, and still here today, and still loving it. 
So how long had you been working for Jimmy before you met his daughter Patsy? In 1967, when Dad and two brothers bought Nilpin of the first pastoral property, Jimmy Nunn came up with his family to Nilpana to run Nilpana Station. And when I first went up there, Patsy was going to boarding school down in Adelaide and the other siblings were uh, doing school through uh, School of the Air. And in 1974, we sort of started sort of seeing each other as boyfriend and girlfriend, I guess. And... We actually were going together nine years before we married and then we had three children. Was it ever when you, when do you think you first realised? Because you'd been there a couple of years before you started dating. Was it when you first got there though and she'd come home from school holidays that she kind of caught your eye or was this a crush for a little while? So I always love to get everybody's romance stories. I guess I always thought she's a smart looking girl and I just sort of, hung in there and, um, yeah, no, I had a crush for her, I must admit. She was a nice young lady and we kept, you know, seeing each other every now and then when she'd come back from holidays and write letters probably once a fortnight and that was about it. There was no Facebook, there was no telephones and that was about it. Were you ever worried that she was the boss's daughter? And might have been off limits? No, not really. Jimmy was quickly, be, you know, in the first couple of years, we'd become mates. We could drive around in the Toyota and and talk so openly and freely like we're just mates. Like him and I just clicked, I think. And I never ever worried about Jimmy. I respected their family life. I respected Patsy, Jimmy and, and Patsy's mum. And I never crossed the line. I always just always respected them. And so nine years of dating before you guys got married, is that around the time that you would have moved to Mount Barry then? Yeah, well, so we married just after. In 1981, the family bought Mount Barry Station or moved over here. And in 1983, we married. But... Um, yeah, no, been at Mount Barry ever since. Yeah, so coming up this year, it is. this will be your 40th year at Mount Barry. It's been amazing. Like, the station was pretty run down when I first come here. And it's a team effort, you know, like building a station up and running a station. You can't run a decent setup without a nice partner and a wife. It's a team effort and good staff. It's, you've got to have your, everything's got to be on song to really enjoy living out here. It's got to be like that. It certainly takes a village, but it's also a testament to you and to Patsy that you've had this place for so long because there's not many people out there who can say they've managed the same property for 40 years, you know, and that's something that I always, you know, in an ideal world, I'd love to see people in the one spot for as long as possible because it's, like you said, you're, you're not just building the property and the infrastructure but looking after that landscape and getting to know it so intimately. Like you literally have a lifetime of experience with this country and how everything works here. Yeah, you do and you, you grow to love the country and the land and the people and and what the outback is about, you know. 
it, it's quite challenging. Mother Nature can really dish it up to you, but you've got to be up to it. You know, you've got to you've got to come out the other side. Like it was um, in the year two thousand, Patsy found out she had breast cancer, and it was a very tough time. She had five years of battling cancer and lost the battle in two thousand three. And those times really harden you up. And um, it certainly tests you out and just sees what, you know, what, what are you made of, you know? What's it all about? What's life about? And it's the things, I guess, really the things that matter in life are family, looking out for each other. But you've got to get on the horse after Patsy died. It was very tough. For two or three years, yeah, you feel really battered and knocked around. But uh, 12 years ago, I met a lovely lady called Jackie, my wife now. And I've been such a, a lucky guy to have had two such wonderful women in my life. And Jackie's full of energy, vibrant. She's into everything. She's just like Patsy was in all of the committees, working like crazy, never stop. If there was 30 hours in a day, they would push the limit and work most of them hours. But it's, yeah, so I've been blessed. I pinch myself nearly every day, and so I've been a lucky man. As long as you're not getting too many bruises from those pinches. <laughs> no, no, no. No, surviving quite well. Do you think before Patsy got sick, did you did you think you had a good balance in life? Like you said before, I mean, now you've got a lot of hindsight, and hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, and you say Mother Nature can throw a lot of curveballs at you, and living in the bush can be quite challenging. Do you think you were really aware of that and kind of had, could think consciously about it before Patsy got sick, and, and you kind of had? I suppose, the life you wanted, or is that sort of one of those moments in life where it kind of makes you reassess everything? Well, I knew what we are in for when we, when we, um, Patsy and I moved together. She'd grown up in the bush. She was a seasoned bush woman. We knew exactly what we needed to do. We had everything we thought down to a fine art. She taught the three children. I run the station. She cooked. We had our portfolios, we, we said, and we, we didn't really cross the line and interfere with each other's portfolio. And we just uh, got on with it. But then you get all these, you know, the curveball comes and blows your candles out. And life's, you've got to readjust to this, this new life. And it's not easy. It's not always easy. There was, you know, like um, many, many trips of radiation and chemotherapy and then the comforting and whatever it takes for the whole family to readjust from the bumps of bad news because it wasn't just breast cancer. It was in two, three years after having breast cancer, she developed 
bowel cancer and then it went to a liver and then to a lung. So, you know, it was it was just a series of bad news, you know, all the time. And each time you had to... Each time the bad news come in, you had to sort of... Well, you fell in a heap, but you had to pick yourself up as a family and move on. And, you know, I've got good brothers around me and, and cousins in our partnership that support you and good friends, or good friends, uh, they just rally around and help you and it just helps you. Those one percenters all the time help to help you to come through the other side. How did you go about coping during those times as, you know, it's almost, I suppose, like a cliche. You're a, a white male in agriculture and farming in the outback, in this isolated area. Is kind of all the conditions for what society kind of expects someone to be very stoic and tough and just take it on the chin, don't talk about your feelings, just get on with it. You know, and this is, you know, even though it was only 20 years ago and we've come a long way in the last 20 years, it's still back then, you know, you were just pretty much the prime target to be that, that that person that everyone just expects to just get, head down, bum up, get on with it. But you had all this going on and a whole life to manage in the business. How did you go about coping with that? Well, one thing you've got to learn, men are allowed to cry. They do. When, uh, when the chips are down and your wife's feeling pretty bad about things, you just have your moments together and then move on. But you can't hide your emotions. It'll be, you'll be, it'll be what it's going to be. And you can't sort of, I guess, see out socially, you, you try to present yourself so that you're, you're coping okay and you, you're going well. But, see, that's, I can understand a lot of the mental health issues, you know, like with people today, that don't, people don't pick up on are you okay because they learn how to smooth it over when they're out, but deep down it can be really killing them. And I'm not saying I was depressed, but you get caught up with the moment and it, and it can be hard work. You just gotta plug on, keep going, battle on. I think though, to hear you say that and, and just the first response you had was to know that it's okay for men to cry is to get, no, I, I had no idea what your response was gonna be, but I'm just thinking right now here on the spot how privileged I am and all our listeners are to have such, you're, you're being so candid and so honest and Again, I don't want to play into the whole, you know, um, cliche thing, but, you know, with someone from, from your generation and you're not actually that old, but we would, oh, sorry, we would call you of the older generation. And that is really where a lot of the pressure has come from in, in the old days to, you know, you don't, yeah, you don't talk about these things and you just get on with it. And so to have somebody from your generation come out and say that, I think hopefully, you know, there will be somebody listening to this podcast that has something going on and it could be any matter of things, but to hear that from you I think is is invaluable. Yeah. Well, look, if you are struggling, I think pick out one or two friends you can really trust and talk to them and they might help you along to see, 
professional help. I've never, ever had professional help or counselling after Patsy passed away. I was offered it, but, you know, you just, yeah, you just move on. And there's one thing you'll never, ever, no one can steal your memories. It doesn't matter what happens. They're in the filing cabinet. They're always there. And, you know, to be with Jackie now is just amazing. Like, you know, I'm so lucky and blessed to to be with such a, a lovely woman. How has life changed? Obviously, that, that might sound like a silly question because life changed so significantly and irrevocably. But how how does how is life or and day to day life different for you now or in the last I suppose almost twenty years now? Well, see, back when Patsy was alive, most of the time the children were being educated either on the station or at boarding school, and now we're living a life up on the station with our staff, and my children live in South, and I've got seven grandchildren, so. It's changed a lot in that sense, but our family life is very strong. Like we're still very close with my three children and the grandkids, and they come up here. I go down and see them. Jackie and I go down. Jackie's daughter's got a little daughter, and it's lovely to catch up with the grandchildren. But it's always nice to come home. I like the bush. May I ask how old your children were when your wife passed away? Well, the youngest one was 15 and Elizabeth was 18. So, you know, they're very vulnerable at that age. And I'm so lucky that I think the grounding they had as kids and Patsy immersed herself in their growing up. She taught them. She We taught them to ride motorbikes and horses and... They played music, they played the drums, you know, they did, they were involved in everything and they had the opportunity to have the best of both worlds because they grew up out in the bush, schooled on the station, then they went to boarding school and then two of them went on to uni and I think they've had the best of both worlds, you know, they've seen a lot. What was it like raising children out on Mount Barry. I think it's amazing growing a family up on a station. They quickly become adults. You know, when when my boys were only eight and ten-year-old, I had them out driving out on ball runs, checking tanks and troughs and cleaning troughs, and when they're seven or eight, put them in a four-wheel drive, put the four-wheel drive in low range and just let them steer the motor car along behind the cattle just to get the feel of the clutch and the brake and the steering wheel. City kids can't do that. I feel sorry for them, you know. They're in a concrete jungle. The kids out here are watching, observing Mother Nature every day and playing with her. And quickly, because they're working and living with adults, their mind is focused more. They mature younger. They understand life, you know, they're seeing cattle and horses breeding and how it all works, you know. They they get a very balanced view on life very early in the piece. 
We consider our pastoral leases our, our goose. And who wants to kill the goose that lays a golden egg? You've got to you've got to look after your pastoral leases. Your land is is the biggest asset, one of the biggest assets you've got besides your family. And if you don't look after it, you're in trouble. I've never actually heard anyone refer to their family as their biggest asset. I like that. Well, it is, you know, like when the chips are down, who's going to be there? Yeah. You've, you've got to have it. And, yeah, so you've got to look, you know, this desert country like Central Australia, Unidata country, you can't overstock it. When you have a, a good flush of seasons, you can go with it for a short period, run a few extra cattle for three or four months, but you You've got to quickly readjust and get your numbers back to where you think they ought to be. And if you overstock, you'll get caught out. You're going to be always chasing your tail. And so you came, did you say it was 1981 that you came to Mount Barry as manager? 1981, that's right. And then you were just telling me before, off air, that before you there was only one other manager since the 1940s? That's right, in 1946... Up until 1946, Mount Barry and Nilpana was run as one station and owned by Brooks, and it was split up in 1946 and Mount Barry was named and a guy called Bob Kemp and his wife Rona owned Mount Barry. So there's only been two, two owners and two managers since 1946 on Mount Barry. Which I think is just incredible when we're thinking about the custodianship of the land and the way the land has been looked after. You know, basically, if there, if there were anything, you know, any degradation or anything that you'd want to point a finger at on this land, really, there's only one or two people you can really point the finger at, which isn't the case in many places. And it's quite easy, I suppose, for people to pass the buck and go, Oh, that old manager this time ago or someone in this course of history has done this, but. It's really only you and Bob Kemp then that we've got to answer to. It's not good for the cattle or the land if you change in management every few years. You need to have a steady hand, like it's like playing poker, you know. You've got to have a steady hand. You've got to be out there looking after the land and just see the cycles and experience them. And the same with your herd. You know, it doesn't matter if you're running Shorthorn, Hereford. We like Pole Hereford and some Angus doesn't matter what you've got. Do a good job with whatever line you've got, whether it's Santa, Droughtmaster. Have a goal to have the best herd in the country. Always be moving forward. And it's like anything with the infrastructure. Just keep moving forward. It really is a long game. Like I, I had someone once tell me, like, don't bother, you know, if you're going to invest in a station or like when they're talking to investors and something, like, don't bother unless you want to be in here for at least, like, you know, a good 20 years, don't think you're going to make any money in the first 10 years. Like, this is the long game. Like, you're not here to just turn a profit overnight. And as you said, it's it's similar with your cattle in your country. Something happens and, you know, you might need to fence off an area or do some mechanical intervention or change something in your genetics with your cattle and it will take years to see the results because it's not something you can just do. I mean, if you change your bull today, you're not going to see those calves for a couple of years. 
No, and then no. by the time they have their calves, like it's a very slow-moving process. It is a very slow-moving process. So you've got to give a lot of careful thought about your management and and have a plan and stick to it. Don't change, you know, every year, have a different plan. You've got to think careful about it. And see, that's where going back to working with guys like Jimmy Nunn help. You've seen what works and doesn't work. Those guys have worked all their life in the outback. Don't reinvent the wheel. You learn to move with technology, which has been amazing. You know, we've gone from virtually only just having flowing balls and a few mound springs to having elaborate water infrastructure setups now with pipelines, flowing balls. Um, solar pumps have been amazing. Um, the ability to build roads, fence lines, road trains, all these things have made managing properties easier. But generally there's less staff on these properties now too, so it's not like it's easy street. It's still hard work. There's lots to do, heaps of infrastructure to keep up to speed, but it's much easier today than it was 40 years ago running a property. We've got the internet. We can market cattle from your office. You can market your cattle today. So I don't want to – it's funny because I don't feel very young, but right now I'm feeling very young because I'm like, tell me about the old days and what – you know, I've only been doing this like almost 15 years, so that's that's nothing um, compared to the time you've just been at Mount Barry. So what was it like, I suppose, starting back from Nilpana days and then when you came to Mount Barry, like – you, you talked about how now we've got... Uh, let's start with water infrastructure. So what was it like back in the 70s if cattle wanted to have a drink of water out in this country? Well, for a start, you know, there was only old mud puncher drill rigs and it was quite hard to get decent organised drillers. And you had pump jacks with old motors, Lister motors and Southern Cross motors, and it was hard work. And they were always breaking down. And then a few years later, the mono bore pumps come in and they were very, very good and still are today. But solar power for pumping water has just been amazing. And now we've introduced, you know, like we've got the farm bot satellite monitoring systems where we can, we can monitor water infrastructure stuff from our phone. If we, if you're overseas, you can check all your tanks. If you're down Adelaide or whatever, you can check your iPad, check on your computer, check on your phone and find out what's going on with your water systems. I think it's um, really interesting that, again, I don't, I don't want to make a thing out of your age, but you are, you've been here 40 years, you've been in your, in your 60s now, wouldn't you? And we're just talking about how back in the day when you first came out here, you they were just what, like drilling. I, this all this stuff kind of goes well over my head, as anybody who's listened to this podcast would know. But with your you, you're drilling and your pumps and your monos and your pump jacks and on those, yeah, that's not my ballpark, not my strong suit. But from that to now, you can sit at your kitchen table and pull up your iPad and know how much water is in certain tanks, and if there's an issue somewhere, you can do it from anywhere in the world. I suppose. While there's so much technology in the agricultural industry, the the adoption of technology 
can be hit and miss and it's generally seen as something that the younger generation is taking on and they're leading the charge. But here you are in your 60s and you're just keeping pace with the rest of them. Well, you just... We're never too old to learn, you know. We're learning every day, so we've got to just move with the times and who knows what's going to be ahead of us, what's going to happen with drones, question mark. What's going to happen? You know, like what technologies will be about in 10 years' time that's going to help us to the extent like they have in the last 20 years? It's just wild that... Yeah, I think so often we just think, oh, if, and if anyone's going to take on this technology, if we're going to sell it to anyone or kind of get them on side, we've just got to go straight to the young people. But uh, anybody listening, if you've got something you want to get tested out, maybe come talk to Tony at Mount Barry. Seem pretty oh. open-minded. Well, most of the, the infrastructure and um, technologies we've got, the young guys have taught me. <laughs> well, that's good. At least that shows that you're open to listening to what other people have to say. You've got to be open to listen. You've got to be open for change. But long as it's for the better, not just for the sake of change. Yeah, yeah. That is um, one of my favourite sayings is don't mistake activity for achievement. Like you can be looking very busy, you can be doing all the things, but just because you're busy, busy, busy doesn't actually mean you're achieving anything. But, you know, being a good cattle person is all about being good with stock. You've got to be a cow psychiatrist. You've got to, you've got to put your head like you're a cow and how do you want to be treated and at the end of the day, it's the way you look after your stock and treat them that will be your one of your number one assets. So if so many things have changed since the 70s or since you, you first came to work in this industry to now, um, and so we've got things like your water infrastructure, transport, uh, power generation, refrigeration, there's so many things that have changed. What do you think has changed in terms of, looking after stock? Uh, genetics has been a pretty big factor, you know, like... Um, and looking after stock, well, you know, we have good trucking facilities, trucking yards and yards and crushes and and road trains, so we've got a good handle. We can look after stock. We can cart hay up and feed our stock and feed our wieners, and, whereas before we never had any of that. We never... We never had a truck at all at Nilpana. I remember back in in the early 70s when we went to Jim Carner's, we walked the horses 140k to Jim Carner's. I did several times, you know, you'd head out 70 or 80k the first day with a pack horse and maybe 10 or 12 horses. Camp halfway, usually around Waldog Bore or Mount Dutton, Get up at four o'clock, go and get the horses, boil a billy, have a have a cup of tea, pack pack your pack up, and away you go with your horses and head to. Now that was that was life. We didn't know any different. So sorry, you would if you wanted to go and compete in a gymkhana, which is like a horse kind of event, um, like different kinds of races and and events um, for anyone that hasn't been to a gymkhana before. Um, you would get on your horse and then have a few more and you would ride 140 kilometres to get there on a horse. That's right. In and the 70s. <laughs> usually about 14 or 15 horses and one pack horse and you'd be riding one. Oh, my God. And just the way you go, that was life. And, you know, 
When we jumped in a motor car after being out in a stock camp riding horses for six weeks and you're doing 50k an hour in a Toyota, you thought the world was going that quick. <laughs> Honestly, from just used to being riding along at four or five k an hour and then to be in a motor car doing 70k an hour, just blow your hair off. That's absolutely wild. When When did it become commonplace to load your horses up on a truck to go somewhere did you you must have just imagine all the time you'd save is that extra drink beer drinking time well you know there was the there was more um machinery when i first went to nilpana there was only one toyota and one motorbike jimmy nunn rode a bmw 650 mainly to check waters and there was hardly even an a welder that's what you did though yeah. So what else, you know, let's talk about how, because it's not often you get to talk to someone that has seen all the changes. And and you said before we started recording, it's been such a rapid uh, rate of, of change in your time managing cattle stations that, you know, will we ever see anything like it again? Like you've gone from, yeah, like the, the lack of, you know, not having the um, – machinery and roads and the way water's done and even how cattle were moved and all of that to what we've got today and it's all changed so quickly in the last like 50 years than how it has in the last 200 years yeah well you know like mustering where's that going to go you know with drones who knows like it we don't know what's ahead of us but it just in that 50 years is a short time when you're talking about life and planets and where we're at but it's just amazing how much it's changed and I guess the generation before they'll say like toughen up sunshine that was nothing in the 70s we lived in the 40s imagine what they went through yeah pioneering this desert country with horses and camels and blokes going off mustering for 40, 50 days and leaving their wives and families in a tin shed to look after themselves while they were away. So the oldies be saying, We've, you mob had it easy. Yeah, actually uh, a couple of episodes ago we had on Helen Kemp whose father managed, father and grandfather managed Macumba Station way back when and great uncle I think it was was at peak as well um and she talked about how they would go out for like months at a time and and in one instance somebody had passed away and by the time they managed to get word out to the stock camp the person had already been taken down south and buried and it was all done and dusted by the time they could even find them to get them the message well a lot of the times they just buried the person on the station like there's yeah. kids graves littered around the stations now you know when it was hot and the kids were drinking water, it killed them. And there was a grave at Wood Duck out on the peak where Peveril Kemp died mm-hmm. from dehydration because of poor uh, water, poor water. And, you know, there was a kid over at SM on Evelyn Downs that drowned. They just, the family had to bury him right there and then. 
It's absolutely very different times back then. And I mean, I think it's very different times now to 20 years ago to then to the 70s to the 40s. And if only we could bring back people from, you know, the 1800s or the early 1900s to get their stories from them. Oh, that'd be incredible. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. But, but today we've got you, so we'll make do with what we've got. You've got some pretty good stories, though. Um, so tell me a little bit more about um, some of the, the changes. Like, so you said there's been, you know, in how water um, was delivered to the cattle. Even um, I think you were telling me earlier that you didn't have a cool room until, like, the late 70s that you just lived off salted beef. And I just, I don't, I'm just trying to um, compare this to what – I'm trying to think of what my family would have been doing in the 70s in the city of Perth, and I'm pretty sure that life included aircon and fridges and 24-hour power. And No, there was none of that. There was Kero fridges, two Kero fridges, and fresh meat only lasted a day or two, and then it was all salted and – there was an underground tank there. We used to dip water out of the underground tank and fill up the water bags. And there was a tank standing up on... It had a heap of uh, cooler bar posts. Mate, were supporting the tank, and it was about eight foot off the ground there at Nilpana with the ball water. And I remember when it was really hot on many, many nights, Jimmy Nunn set up a, a shower under the tank, and it was just cold water, and... You know, some nights, you know, be 38 degrees still at midnight and you're laying in a swag. We very rarely slept inside because it was just too hot. And you get up and wake up in the night and you'd sweat and run over and have a cold shower or shares just straight out of the, you know, the cold water, straight out of the tank and dampen yourself or dry yourself off lightly and then get back into your swag and then you'd be right then, have a get a few hours sleep but it was very hot no air conditioning and wasn't many you know there wasn't many treats like ice cream or any of those sort of things and and no beer on the station there was nothing to keep it cool so but you know we people were happy at night people played cards when or back at the station We'd play cards and, and board games and, you know, there was no TV, not even videos back them days. So, yeah, people kept themselves amused and I think the biggest thing, you know, respect each other on the station and help each other, work as a team and those sort of things get you through the tough times. Well, back in the early days... You know, like when you mustered cattle and you're out pretty much tracking cattle and riding around. And marketing was a, was a different ball game to those days back in the 70s. Today, like, there's plenty of opportunity to sell feeder steers into feedlots. Well, back in the 70s, no such thing as a feedlot. So running a pastoral lease back in the, you know, in the desert country back them days, you'd hope like hell you'd get a rain so you put enough condition on the cattle to sell them as fats or grinding meat or you know that that was your only marketing option so it was very very tricky if you come into a dry time even selling stores lines of store there wasn't there wasn't the road trains and the transport facility to move cattle around like there is today like today 
how did you, sorry, if there weren't road trains, how did you ha- move cattle around back then? Well, you either walked them or they went on the train. The roads weren't good enough for road trains. It was later in the 70s that road trains started moving around. And if you couldn't walk them well, they went on the train along the old GAN line. And most of the cattle were sold into Jeps Cross or down um, to Adelaide. There used to be three trains, stockies running down past from Alice Springs down to Adelaide, three a week. So there was a lot of cattle, you know, probably 2,000 a week being transported along the GAN down to Adelaide every week. Wow. And so back then, as you were saying, there weren't feedlots, so it was you basically sold them straight to slaughter and there wasn't much of a choice of what you could do with them once you mustered them up. No, your marketing opportunities were extremely limited and back them days you sort of grow your cattle out older because the bullocks, you know, like hold a bit of condition. Even in a dry time, you know, you'd find a few bullocks out that have a bit of condition on them and you could sell them. But nowadays it's more based on, you know, you've got two options. You'll have your feeder steers for feedlots or if you go, if you've got a good season, go with the season. While you've got a good season, go with it and let the cattle, you know, put on condition because this country, when it's on song, there's no country better. It's sweet. It's like a smorgasbord, you know. Cattle have got everything. They've got energy. They've got protein. They've got the, the full deal, heaven on a stick for a cow. So just let them, let them go and they'll put on, you know, your steers will put on one and a half kilos a day. It's um, I, it's interesting. I also just love that you've used the heaven on a stick twice in this episode now. I'm, I'm always going to think of Jimmy Nunn when I hear heaven on a stick though now. Um, but when you say this country, when it's on song, like it's on and it's, it's a smorgasbord because depending where you drive around, I feel like to the untrained eye, this country could be quite deceiving. You know, there was a part I'm driving out today in like these gibber flats or gibber plains, like this really rocky part. Sometimes it just looks like the moon. And then you'll come, you'll go through a bit and go to another spot and there's just feed everywhere. Like it, if you're driving through the wrong part or not the wrong part, but a part that if you don't understand its function in the landscape, you might just think like, what is going on out here? But it is an incredible country that is such low rainfall. But when it gets it, it goes gangbusters. It does. Well, if you're driving out from Cooper Pedy towards Udnadatta to Mount Barry, you'll go across what is known as the Moon Plain, and that was 100 million years ago. That was the ancient seabed, and it's just desert, useless country. And then you come along and you hit Gibber Tableland, Mitchell Grass country, and, and good creeks, you know, there's good local creek systems here where the creeks... Um, are three kilometres, four kilometres wide, and in season they're amazing. You know, you get verbine and clovers and you name it. You know, there's just amazing cattle feed and they do so well and the cattle become, you know, the colours in the cattle are very deep and rich and that tells you they're getting a balanced diet and also... That's why we run British bred type cattle. They have the ability to stack on a lot of kilos. When you do, when you do get a season, they'll put on a lot of kilos. And, and your Hereford cows, they'll go up to 700 kilos in body weight. 
in no time. They put on two kilos a day, and they've got that fat and that that body mass to grow a calf virtually over the next year on next to nothing. It is. A, it has been quite a learning curve for me in this part of the world because driving around seeing these fat cattle with wieners on them that are like the size of Shetland ponies, like they are not what I would call a wiener. From where I come from, you know, they get, you know, to be able to reconceive, they pull them off a lot earlier. And here I'm seeing these yesterday even I just saw some massive wieners and yet there's it's on a pregnant mum like she's managed to reconceive and hold her condition and it's just incredible what the cattle can do down yeah here well, when we're having a good season we actually don't wean yeah yeah we, we just let them go with it because the British bred cattle the pole Herefords are very fertile they'll be in calf again and they'll have a big calf swinging off them and they'll do a job and a half on it too yeah it is. It, it has been for somebody who's been up in the far, far north in like Brahman country. Um, it is a whole different world down here. So you cannot put them in the same basket by yeah. any means. But when it dries off, then we need to wean and help the cow and give it yeah. a chance. Yeah. But we find the pole Hereford are very good doers out here. They don't make too much milk. They have the ability to put on heaps of kilos in a season. They're fertile. They're easy to market. They're proven cattle for this country. Yeah, they're your ideal woman. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I just want to jump back before we finish up. You mentioned uh, earlier, you know, we're talking about technology and, you know, you never know where it's going to go and you said drones and that just made me think of, you know, today it's it's common for a lot of people around the country to have some sort of aerial assistance during their mustering. But you mentioned right back at the beginning of this episode that when you – first came up here and I suppose for quite a while um track mustering was the way it was done I've never been track mustering I honestly you put me on your driveway out here this afternoon and I'll struggle to find the tracks I drove in on like I'm pretty shocking so I would love to hear from you about track mustering and how that works yeah especially because I you spin me around three times in this kitchen I'm gonna get lost yeah I will See, a lot of those early days mustering, there was Aboriginal stockmen, they could track a lizard gun over cement. Unbelievable, you know. That I'd be riding along with some of those guys and they say, look at that, and you'd look down and you'd say, look, yeah, those tracks, they're only this morning, those cow tracks. And you learn from those fellas what you're looking for and you'll soon... You become sharp at it. You sharpen up. You stay alert. You, you're close to Mother Nature. When you're riding a horse and you're out in the sand hills, and especially at daylight, you can hear cattle. Cattle will sing out in the morning. First light, cattle sing out. And if you were mustering in rivers and and floodplains, you'll hear cattle in the morning, and then it gives you that chance of sneaking up on them and track them down, and then set up a bit of a strategy if then in the tight bit of country, how are you going to block them up? Because they're going to be lively, you know. Back then, people didn't get around them too often and some of them were quite lively. So you had to get around, block them up and, and just walk them off steady and then muster into them as you go. Once you've got a tailor mob, you've got a, you can, you know, wheel cattle into your tailor mob and you, you're right, but, 
it was quite slow, it was steady, but we used to get, you know, we would get big clean skins turn up because there was no fences around and you might be mustering one area and the storm's about while you're mustering cattle are moving around. So it was nothing to get clean skin bulls, you know, like three-year-old every now and then turn up. And most times, you know, if if it was a bit dry and they you and they weren't good enough to truck, you had to mark them and you'd stretch them with two bronco horses and dehorn them because most of the cattle back in the day had horns, but now people have gone for pole cattle. Dehorning's a pretty much a thing of the past in our setup, so we we're breeding pole cattle, but having things changed. I just I can't wrap my head around the changes that you have gone through in the last 50 years in this industry you know i don't know i've said it a few times so coming up here with the water the roads the transport or lack thereof um you know even the refrigeration cattle you would track muster them and then you would bronco brand them so everything was on horses and you'd have to brand them by horse and today you've got aerial, like, you know, the assistance of things in the sky and you can be anywhere in the world and know exactly how much water is in your tank, which is being pumped by solar energy. And it's just, you know, you've got a, a mob of motorbikes and, and yards, you know, and, and you are very lucky you can do the Bronco branding for fun and it's not something that's going to make you very tired yeah, after, yeah, you know, at the end of the year. We still like Bronco branding for sport and the, teach the young ones the art of bronco branding but talking about like technologies you know like the young ring ringers are carrying phones with with maps mm-hmm. that's how i found my way out here today yeah, so you know they they can find out where the camp is from their telephone you know it points to where the camp is and and you know like it it's a change world for sure yeah it's incredible and i think also, what will be evident as people have listened to this episode is that you've lived a very full life. Gosh, when I say it like that, it almost makes it sound like you're at the end of your life. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Tony. You're definitely a fair way off that. Um, but, you know, to have started this new life, you know, come up and had this great adventure and found love and experienced loss and then to find love again and to raise your family and to be able to speak so candidly and openly about it, it just is a testament to your character and who you are. And I can only imagine the legacy of of your children and the people that you've taught. And I, I imagine there will be people out there that think of you the way that you think of Jimmy Nunn. Because it's, it's not very often that you can sit down with someone, you know, and you don't know me very well, but you're, you're candid and you're honest and you've, you clearly have like reflected on your life and it's such a privilege to be able to get insights from someone like you. I think you've got to be honest with yourself and with people and life. You can't be fake. You get caught out. Honesty prevails. Yeah. It's just, no, it's just been such a privilege because often, you know, you can just get, you can get a story from anyone, but to have the honesty and, yeah, for you to speak the way you have about things has been great. Um, so before we wrap up, because I don't want to rob you of your voice as I haven't had one for the last few weeks, that would be horrible to pass that on. Um, 
you, I just want to ask, you, you said earlier in this episode as well that, you know, life is a roller coaster and there's ups and downs and mother nature really knows how to give it to you. What have you learned looking back? And it doesn't necessarily have to be about mother nature, but you've got a good, good mob of time of experience to look back on. And there'll be a lot of people listening to this that are probably just starting out. And I'm sure we'd all love to know like, what, what is the takeaway lesson for you? And what have you learned about life so far? There's still a lot to go. (laughs) There will be always barriers jump in front of you. You've got to learn a way around them. It's like when Pat's used having chemotherapy. The chemo put up a barrier and blocked the cancer for a while, but it found its way. It moved around. We've got to be adaptable for change. We've got to go with the change. And where it takes us, who knows? 